0: One chapter, chapter one verses fifty-seven through eighty. I'm going to just read verses fifty-seven through sixty-six. Comment on them, teach on them, and then we go into um, the the rest of the passage. Check the notes up here. Okay. Verse fifty-seven says, "Now at the time, to- now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she had son." Their neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her uh, his great mercy, and they rejoiced with her. When they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother responded, no, he will be called John. Then they said to her, none of your relatives have that name. So they motioned to his father to find out what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote his name, and is John. And they were all amazed. Immediately his mother was opened, and his tongue, or his mouth was opened, and his tongue was free, and they began to speak, praising God. Fear came on all those who lived around them, and all these things were being talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. All who heard about him took it to heart, saying, What then will this child become? For indeed the Lord's hand was with him. Lord, we do pray and ask that Your hand be upon us as we look at this text, and um, Lord, would You speak to us uh, Your things, the things that are dear to Your heart, uh, the things that um, Your Spirit wants to say to us. We know You know our story, and we're just so grateful for the work of the Holy Spirit just to come and speak um, into our life, um, to show us Your heart as we look at these things, to give us just an understanding of them. God, would you just give us your grace, your grace, your word, your conviction, your instruction in righteousness, the praise in Jesus' name, amen. So again, Luke is a letter written by the physician Luke. He's writing to his patron, Theophilus. This is volume one of uh, his teaching. And so, yeah, you can just give me a little bit more volume when the heater comes on. That's perfect. Thank you. Um, so this is, um, the intent is, is, he wants to buffet and hold up Theophilus' faith. Imagine a man who is wealthy, a man who could have lived in false Point, a man who could have afforded his own doctor, and he um, has trusted in Christ, and he's relied upon other accounts, but Luke really wants to sure up his faith. He wants him to believe what he believes with certainty. And so he's written this account. It's a 35-foot-long it's a scroll. And Luke's themes are the plan of God and the kingdom of God. Those are going to continue to reign out as we go through the text. So far, we've looked at how God came to Zechariah as he's performing his priestly duties. Um, is married to Elizabeth, who's barren and older, um, cannot have children. And God tells Zechariah, you're going to have a child. You're going to name him John. And then... Um, God speaks and reveals uh, to Mary, through the angel Gabriel, that she's going to have a child. Even though she's a virgin, she's going to have a child. And Mary travels and goes to see Elizabeth. And Elizabeth's uh, uh, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, at six months old, leaps for joy. And Mary sings out a song of praise to God. And the whole theme of the song is how God um, is involved in our human affairs. He's, he cares about humanity. And then we jumped in, when we did the Miracle of Christmas event, we looked at birth of Jesus, how Jesus was born, um, in probably the lower chamber of a house, probably the guest chamber, the, that word that is translated in, that we classically think of the word as in, um, more commonly referred to the guest chamber of a home, um, and because there was a census and because Joseph and Mary were younger, they wouldn't have had the, um, uh, they wouldn't have been top in the pecking order of being able to uh, use their relative's guest chamber, Uh, they were placed on the bottom floor of the house probably where the animals were kept and where the uh, feeding trough was for the animals, Animals, for the sake of protecting animals, were brought in at night to that lower floor and uh, and that's probably where uh, Jesus was born, on the lower bottom floor of one of these uh, Jewish homes. So let's go backwards to the text here and we'll look at the, the birth of John, so the time came Elizabeth gave birth and they decide that they want to, the relatives and the neighbors are expecting that he will carry on this name of Echariah, just like his dad and Elizabeth has to say no, that's not the case, this is not that's not going to be his name, instead this baby is going to be named John, and then it's confirmed through a writing tablet, probably a, the way that these writing tablets would work would be like a piece of wood with a little bit of a um, wax layer, and then you have an iron um, uh, kind of pencil-looking thing to etch out the lighting. And that's probably how Zachariah, throughout all of Elizabeth's pregnancy, had been communicating with her husband um, during that time, or somehow that was kind of the the way that communication was taking place. Sweet. Well, this is like a magnetic uh, face. <laughs> but not too technical. Not not uh, not too bad. Okay. So um here's here's the thing. As we look at John's um, naming, right? So he's named on the eighth day. He's circumcised a name which this the circumcision of John represents him being brought into the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. So it wasn't just a formality, it definitely wasn't just a formality for the baby, Um, but it represented literally being brought into God's plan. Again, the plan of God that um, was revealed originally to Abraham, and then now every time there's a male that's born and circumcised, it represents him being brought in to that um, covenant. You know... As I was praying about this text, the thing that just stood out to me is that here's God's plan unfolding through a child, right? In our world, the world that we live in, there, there is the world's way of viewing babies and kids, and then there's God's way of viewing kids. And um, there was, I was looking up, a doing some research to prepare for this, and I, there's a Q and A, kind of like um, an Ask Martha type Q and A in the Guardian. And a girl, she wrote in. Uh, she says, "I've been with my boyfriend for three years, and recently he has decided he wants kids. When uh, before we both shared views." We've got to get, we get him on Stripe. Okay. Slack. Right? Yep. Oh, Stripe is the payment method, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, where were we? Okay, so here's here's this uh, question that was written into the uh, editor. I've been with my boyfriend for three years, and recently he's decided he wants kids, when before we both shared views on not wanting them. He believes time to change my mind. He's 31, I'm 22, but I know myself. I am ready for another big step in life a house, getting married, both of which he has not expressed that he wants, I want to believe I will change my mind, but I'm afraid it will then be too late for him to have kids. I'm scared he will resent me if I don't give him a baby, and worse, I believe I will resent him if I do. Any advice, any I don't want to leave him, I'm afraid it's the more responsible decision, no matter how much it will hurt. So, the calmness responds this way, Whoa! Steady on! You presented me with a more complicated situation than is immediately apparent. In isolation, the baby issue may appear uh, momentous, but it's actually more of a distraction. You're barely out of your teens and have years ahead of you in which to ponder your options on parenting. It would be unusual if you were chomping at the bit to get on with procreating when you're only 22 years old. When it comes to breeding, we're evolving into late starters, not least uh, because with increasing lifelines, we cling to the distractions of youth for much longer. There are uh, plenty of arguments about the best time to become a parent, and although leaving it too late is a bad idea, very few arguments weigh on the upside of extreme youth. Why does he want to highlight an, an impasse that exists between you and him at this time, when it is truly not relevant. Working out who you are and what you want to achieve is definitely more easily embarked on without the responsibility of raising a child. But do not make the mistake of assuming what you feel now is what you will feel forever. Um, last last paragraph here. And she says adaptability is a key, characterif- uh, key characteristic. Key characteristic characteristic as we move through life. But I'd wager you're in the majority of young women who prefer to defer until they have the time to enjoy unfettered freedom. As you go through, the the article is a a good bit longer than this. As this woman uh, tries to give advice on when this girlfriend should be willing to have a baby or not. And what is amazingly clear is that there's no good answer. There's no no moorings. There's no um, anchor for an opinion. It's, it's the values instead that come out is, well, you have freedom, and you're young, and and she actually, the further she goes on with her vice, she says, she starts to blame the boyfriend and say, really, the boyfriend is just using this because he knows you don't want the baby, and so he's using this as an excuse to break up with you. It's just a mess, right? When you, and the point is this, is that the world's view of children and babies, the further the world gets away from God, the less value is placed upon children, for God, for the purpose that God gives to children, right? And so, imagine for just a second, if I came to you, let's say I was a new, uh, newly married, and I said to you, "What reasons can you give me that I should have a baby, that we should, that we should get pregnant? What would be, what would be the, the basis for that?" As you think through it that question is is really important some of you will go on you'll have kids have families some of you will counsel other families some of you will we all work with children in one way or another and the world has its set of reasons of why to have kids or not have kids and the bible has a completely different agenda this is when we talk about kids and babies you have an intersection that is uh, a mess essentially In Western culture, uh, babies are often viewed as dispensable. If they're not yet out of the womb, they can be aborted. They're viewed oftentimes, some will say they're a burden on society because the world is overpopulated. Um, Others will say that they're in direct conflict with a cultural value of personal freedom. Personal freedom in our Western culture is just like up there as a top way to navigate life, right? What makes you feel good? How do you express yourself? Individuality and freedom are like one of two chief ethics within Western culture. Um, so there's kind of some of the negative views on on childbearing within the West. Some of the bad reasons that are given for childbearing in the West is that they can be a source of happiness, or um, entertainment, or a means of accomplishing unfulfilled objectives in life. You know, I'm going to live out my life vicariously through my kids. I didn't make it to the Olympics, but I'm sure my son can, right? That type of thing. Those are, those are bad reasons uh, for having kids. They can be uh, useful, or in this case, the, the way that in this one scenario that plays out in the guardian, this baby is spoken of by both the girlfriend as, and as a person giving counsel as a bargain chip. Literally, as if, as if the relationship hinges upon this child and the future of this relationship hinges upon this child. Um, and then there's one of the most arrogant views of children, which is this idea that um, p- potential parents think that they are so beautiful or so smart that they need to reproduce themselves so that the world can have more of them. I know you. I know you run into a lot of people like that, but there are. Um, more affluent and people who we call elites who really do view procreation and having kids as kind of just say, um an arrogant arrogant view of um themselves that, that the world needs more of me but here in our story god has a plan that is unfolding as he has over and over again throughout the old and the new testament and he brings a baby into the world to accomplish that plan in Genesis chapter, um, well, first of all, we have a, the covenant, right? That is viewed in this text. The Abrahamic covenant is in view as this baby is getting circumcised. It, that gives it its significance. The second thing that we have is is this name that's given to him. It's not the normal name. It's it's a breaking of the cycle of instead of giving a generational name after 400 years. Of God being silent. Imagine Israel hasn't had a prophet for 400 years. That's longer than America has been a country, right? For 400 years, God's been silent since Malachi, the book of Malachi, was written. And now, all of a sudden, the name of a baby is to be not his father's name, it's to be the name John. Because God is breaking into the world again, once again, revealing himself and saying, You need to name this baby John. And then the neighbors and relatives are questioning what this child will become because of the special circumstances. So God's got people's attention. They're wondering, what is the future? Because of what has taken place here. In Genesis chapter 1, 2, uh, 27, it says this. God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea. So right there, right at the beginning, the very first chapter of the Bible, we see that children were a command within the garden. So this is before the sin, before the fall, God is is saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Psalm one twenty-seven three says this, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And then in Psalm 128, 3, uh, 3 and 4, children are, are presented as a um Again, as as an aspect of wealth. The psalmist says, Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house, your children like the olive plants all around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. So having these kids all around your table, again, it's a sign of God's blessing upon you. So a biblical view of children is this. First, they're a gift or a reward from God. It's a display of God's favor, that God allows us to have kids. Second, they are a part of God's original plan in the garden, to be fruitful and multiply. So it's an act of obedience. Third, children represents God's plan unfolding in the world. So over and over again, when we see, um, so like even the Abrahamic covenant, God comes to Abraham and says, "Um, I want to bless the world through you. I want to create a nation out of you. That promise is contingent upon a baby being born. Right? That, that covenant cannot be fulfilled without a baby being given to Abraham and his wife, Sarah. So um, it's a part of God's plan. It's a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And finally, God works through kids even as before they are grown. Um, we see Joseph being given a dream of what would take place. We see David, the shepherd boy, killing Goliath. We see Hezekiah, the young man who becomes the king of Israel. God, God is not afraid to use kids to accomplish his plan. All of those things are so, so important as we, um, because, because kids can easily become common, right? Um, babies and kids within society can uh, easily take a, a, a position of being less valuable. Um, bring it home a little bit here. If you go back to February in the city of Baltimore, Um, When the new mayor was sworn in, the crisis that we had was that we had a $130 million shortfall with education. The public school um, budget had this shortfall, which represented about a thousand staff cuts across the schools. And so there's this outcry of how are we going to care for the kids of our city? So as Christians, we have a voice in that process. We have a voice into what kids mean, Right. And I would suggest that the answer to um, valuing kids in from a biblical perspective is more than just um, education. Right? From my kind of worldview and the way that I look at it, I think that too much of a burden is placed upon teachers to fix the future generation of society. Instead, we want to say we want to look at who is doing the naming here in the text. Who is the one who is participating? Who did, who did society ask to name this child? It was the parents, right? It wasn't public school. It wasn't the government that named John. It was the parents. They were the ones that were responsible. They were the ones that, that had uh, the societal responsibility to direct the life of this boy. So all that to say, here we have this glimpse into this prophet, John, who was foretold of in Isaiah chapter 40. He's going to come in. He's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. God foretold him. God has this plan that is unfolding, which is going to be our recurring theme as we go through And here it's playing out as we see this baby being born and being named. So in Romans chapter 12, it says we're called to have our, our, our understanding renewed, right? We're, we're to have the way that we think changed by the spirit of God. And so again, I go back to that question. As you think about the kids around you, or if a new um, couple came to you and said, what should I think? When should I have kids? What should I think about kids? What, what role will they play? Understand that Western culture and its answers to that question are very different from what the Bible says. We don't have kids to fulfill some selfish desire. We don't have kids um, as a bargaining chip or to try to make our marriage or our relationships better. We have we have kids because God is accomplishing a plan in the world, right? We take steps of faith. Well, any any pregnancy should be a step of faith, and it should be a belief that God's breaking into the world. As this baby breaks forth in the world, it's a representation that God is could work anew in a fresh and a new generation. Amen. Verse 67, let's read through this. 67 through 80. It says, his father Zachariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father's Abraham uh, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way of him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercies of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and to shadow and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the place of peace, the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. So, just in passing, note the language right in, right off the bat in verse 67 the, the father Zachariah, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the language that's used to go through, through, through Acts, right? So, who Acts? Same guy that wrote Luke. So, As you go through the story of the beginning of the church, the beginning, the leaders of the church and different members of the church acted in the same way here that Zachariah acted, filled the Holy Spirit, right? The the relationship that we have with God, so there's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father sent the Son into the world to die on the cross and save us from our sins, right? To live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserve to die so that we could live anew with him. But then Jesus ascended to the Father and he sent his spirit into the world, not under the old covenant, but according to the new covenant. Where we have an ongoing, unbroken relationship with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit not only is in us, but sometimes comes upon us to um, do what is done here, which is speak a prophetic word. In 1 Corinthians 14, it talks about how in the early church there were those who would come into the church and would prophesy. Now, prophecy takes on two two roles. Sometimes it's telling the future and other times it's, Telling the truth about the modern day and connecting God's truth with the reality today, kind of calling the kettle black, right? Calling things as they are, and so here Zechariah is just allowing the truth of God to break in, like this baby has come in, and now the Spirit of God gives Zechariah's word about this baby. And here's the amazing thing: is a baby, right? You got to This can kind of continues on. The theme of of the blessings that are given in the Old Testament where a father would lay his hand upon the firstborn or Jacob laying his hands upon his 12 sons and blessing them prophetically. That blows my mind because it's this speaking about here's what's going to happen. And yet this is a baby laying there, right? Eight days old, just having been circumcised, right? So vulnerable. And yet this baby here is being spoken of about its future by God through the instrument of Zechariah. Now, Warren Wiersbe takes this um, this paragraph and he breaks this song or this prophecy into four parts. Verse 68, he says it's the picture of a prison door being opened. Here's what it says. He says, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and he has redeemed them. Redeemed is to buy back, right? He's taken them, he's paid the price so that they can be set free. So we see that God is the God who's going to open the prison door. This is the language of of Israel after 200 years in Exodus 3. Remember in Exodus 3 when Israel, they're making bricks, they don't have straw anymore to make the bricks, they're enslaved under Pharaoh, they're crying out to God, and God reveals himself as the God who hears, the God who sees, the God who looks upon his people. And so here Zechariah uses the same language and says, God, this is the God who redeems his people. So our God, the God who we worship tonight, at the end of 2017, going into 2018, Is the God who opens prison doors, who pays our redemption price, who wants to open up those prison doors for us. The second revelation of God here in Zechariah prophecy is that he's pictured as the God who wins the battle. Verses 69 through 75. 69 through 75. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our fathers, Abraham, and to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear. So he's rescued us. He's rescued us from our enemies. It's a picture of a God who comes in and beats our enemies, right? Beats Satan's will for us overcomes the devil on our behalf. Then third, we see in 76 through 77, the canceling of our debt. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of his salvation, through forgiveness of their sins. So the forgiveness of sins, this is the canceling of our debt. We'll come back to that in a second. And then you see the dawning of a new day. Right, That's the fourth word picture that's used here, the seventy eight. 79 says this: to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Well, sorry, let's go to seventy eight. And because of the tender mercies of God, by which he, ra- he the rising of the sun will come to us from heaven to the shining of those who live in darkness and in the shadow of death. So John is participating in all this awesome prophecy. This is this is John the Baptist as a baby being prophesied over. That he's participating in the great work of God leading into this. Look at verse 77, just in closing. This is like the capstone passage. It says to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. He's given each of us, I know with all of us in this room, like we we have knowledge of salvation, that God's revealed himself to us, that we have the forgiveness of sins. It's so important, I think, and and I've said this before, and I'll probably keep saying it. As long as we're going through the Bible, we should be preaching the gospel to ourselves on a regular basis, on a daily basis, reminding ourselves of those four truths, right? What does our salvation mean? It wasn't just an act that God did, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, whatever it was that you were saved. No, it's something that is real, true today. We have the knowledge of salvation. Again, the four points of salvation. We were created by God in his image. We were intended to be in a loving relationship with God for eternity. We bear his image, and he intended for us to love him and receive his love forever. But the fall came in. That's the second part of the gospel, that um, we rebelled against God. all have rebelled against God and experienced death on a universal scale and are deserving of eternal damnation for that rebellion. Reminding ourselves of that on a daily basis is humbling. It puts us into the proper place that we deserve judgment. The third part of the gospel is redemption and restoration that we have been redeemed. The story of the scripture is the story of God's redemption over and over again. God is coming to save the day. He saved Israel over and over again from their enemies. And yet the ultimate expression of God's redemption is through his son Jesus dying on the cross, paying for our sin so that we could be forgiven and be rescued from eternal damnation. And fourth, we have new life, right? God is now at work in those who have surrendered their life to him and he's making all things new. He's making all things new. So every day, that message is a deserving message that we should preach to ourselves, reminding ourselves that, that we have been saved. That God did it because he loved us, not just because, um, or not at all, because there's anything in us that deserves that love, but he did because he wanted to bring glory to his name. So, in closing, a miracle baby was born because God had a plan to bring King Jesus into the world to redeem us and rescue us from all that is messed up, so we get this prophecy about John, and it's revealing that God's plan is unfolding, that it's continuing on, and that it, what what's going on with John literally two thousand years ago has ramifications for us today. Um, and you know, I'll say this too: however it fits, that the whole thing about God just just watching how God works through kids is so important i don't know what that means for you and kind of your life and your relationship with other kids around you but it is so important that we have a biblical understanding on babies and on children and understand that god loves them has a plan for them is working through them um, we see that with john but we see john is just kind of when it comes to time we see it all the way throughout the old and New Testament. all right let's pray um let's bow our heads lord we just um pray you take this text let's look at john and here's this, this prophet who's going to prepare the way for you to come into the world. God, we just are, are grateful for how your plan unfolds and how you are establishing your kingdom. And for each of us in our own stories, or whatever it looks like for us to, to, to remind ourselves and preach to ourselves the truth of the gospel, we pray, Lord, for—we um, just ask for that, that reminder, that work you know, on a regular basis. As we go into 2018. Lord, let it be at a year where just the message of John of uh, just prepare the way of the Lord, just uh, humble hearts, just accepting of the Messiah, the role of the Messiah. Lord, we pray that we would be a people that that receive that work in our lives. That we receive your work in our lives. So um, go before us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. amen. We're going to take communion.